Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 258. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lended Fintech. Today's episode is sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA. The world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking is going virtual. It's happening online September 29th through October 1st. This year, with everything that's been going on, there will be so much to talk about. It will likely be our most important show ever. So join the fintech community online this year, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA. We have a very special guest on the show today. I'm delighted to welcome Rich Cordray. He is the former director of the CFPB, a position he held from 2012 through the end of 2017. He was the first director of the CFPB. And uh, he's also recently written a new book. Uh, It's called Watchdog, How Protecting Consumers Can Save Our Families, Our Economy and Our Democracy. We talk about a range of different topics here. We talk about payday lending. We talk about uh, overdrafts. Uh, we talk about the Supreme Court decision. Uh, we talk about innovation and how the CFPB you know, really encouraged that. And uh, we talk about open banking and much more. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Rich. Glad to be here. Okay, so you've obviously you've got a very interesting background, but one thing I want to I just want to touch on that I was reading about in your background, going back many many years, you you were actually a Jeopardy champion back in the nineteen eighties, I believe. So, why don't you just tell us a little bit about that experience and and how sort of you know, how it sort of I guess you know influenced your future from back then. Well, that was my uh, deep, dark strategy for paying off student loans. Uh, <laughs> doesn't work for the broad uh, run of the population, but worked for me. Uh, no, I, uh, I had done some quiz show type programs over the years in school, and I had a friend who went out and was on Jeopardy and did very well, and he came back and said, I should do that. I was in law school at the time. I felt like I was very busy. But the next year when I went off to Washington and served as a law clerk, I found some time. I, I went out to Los Angeles and tried out, which is how you did it in those days. This was before online uh, tried and got invited to be on the show and was one of their five-time champions. At the time, again, different from now, uh, you played five games, and if you won five games in a row, they took you off the show and had you come back later for the Tournament of Champions. But uh, uh, I did that, and it was you know, successful for me. I made more money on Jeopardy than I did working for the Supreme Court that entire time. <laughs> great. That's, that's a great story. Okay. Well, let's fast forward through uh, several decades, uh, I guess, to your time at the CFPB. And, you know, you uh, um, obviously the CFPB has been, you know, it came out of the financial crisis and Dodd-Frank and, you know, you were the first permanent appointed, you know, head of the CFPB. So when you look back at that time, what, what, what are you most proud of, of in, in your tenure there? You know, there's actually a lot of things. We had a great team of people. I'm, I'm proud of building the agency and building the quality of the personnel as, as highly as we did. But I would say there were three things I think that stick out the most. 
The first was that we were willing to bring and were aggressive about bringing enforcement actions to change behavior in the financial industry. We ended up recovering $12 billion for 30 million Americans through a series of different enforcement actions, and I think that made a difference in the marketplace. Uh, second, we were coming off of a financial crisis that had been caused by a tremendously irresponsible and predatory mortgage lending. And Congress had given us the task of putting safeguards in place to improve the mortgage market and to make it a stronger market, a better market for consumers, and frankly, better for the industry, which had, had failed dismally in the lead up to the crisis. Uh, and I believe we did that. I think the, the rules have been assessed now. There was a five-year look-back requirement. We've come into this new crisis, and foreclosures have been very low. Loans have been strong. And so that, that was important. And then the third thing is something I talk about in my book, a whole chapter of my book, and I was surprised that it led itself to that much uh, discussion. But we set up a complaint response system that allowed individual Americans to have their voices be heard and have their problems be handled and responded to by the Bureau. More than a million three hundred thousand people did that during my time there. There are now well over two million complaints that they've handled, and it has been very effective for people across the country. It also was very effective at helping the Bureau understand better what kind of real-time challenges consumers were facing so that we could understand and address those challenges. So mm -hmm. in that respect, too. So how would those complaints work? Like if some, someone files a complaint, you can't, you can't sort of go and fully investigate 1.3 million complaints. You just don't have the manpower for that. So do you look for, you know, if someone's, if, if like 50 people are complaining about the same thing as then you'd go and investigate it? Or what was the process there? So every complaint got handled and, and processed. And in the first place, what we did was we put them to the financial company that was complained about to address in the first instance, which is interesting because very often the consumer had gone to the company once or twice before coming to us. But we found that when we were looking over their shoulder and we made it clear to them that if they didn't process complaints uh, appropriately, uh, that could be the basis for an enforcement action, they were more responsive. They, they, they gave them more respect. They gave them more time, more effort. Uh, so that was important. But, but as you say, it was also important for us to recognize that uh, to do meaningful interventions on these complaints, we needed to look for a pattern of problems that consumers were facing. And when we found that, we did take enforcement actions. Uh, and we did look at companies through our examination process, our supervision process, to clean up those kinds of problems. I tell a story in the book about a young service member and his father. He was put into a very predatory auto loan and it turned out it was part of a network of lenders across the country that were doing this to service members who are ripe targets for abuse. They're young people out on their own for the first time, guaranteed paycheck from the U.S. government. So they are very handy uh, targets for a lot of predators. We looked at that and found a pattern of problems, and we ended up taking an enforcement action that corrected the problem for 50,000 service members across the country, recovered millions of dollars and ended up revamping the Pentagon's allotment program for paying of, of debts for military service members that solved a lot of problems on into the future. So that was an example of how the voice of the consumer, you know, amplified sometimes by, as you say, multiple complaints, a pattern of complaints, 
could become uh, good work done by the Bureau to resolve consumer problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So do you think that, you know, during your tenure, do you think that you had an impact on the behavior of companies in, you know, in financial services? Do you feel like this, the fact that they knew that there could be an enforcement action against them changed behavior? It clearly changed behavior, and it changed behavior significantly for some institutions, not as significantly for some others who we continue to have troubles with. Of course, these things are uneven across an entire marketplace with lots of different players, but they certainly understood. And by the way, it was part of the resistance to the Bureau. There was significant resistance to the Bureau and efforts in Congress to slow us down or intimidate or impede us in various ways because companies didn't want to be told what to do. They didn't want to have the law enforced aggressively. And very often they, they were dragged kicking and screaming into change. But in many instances, that was not the case. In many instances, people realized that if we could clean up the marketplace, that'd be better for their customers. It'd be better for them if they were trying to be a high road business doing the right things, not having to compete against the cheaters who cut corners or violate the law to get an advantage which creates a very difficult dynamic in the marketplace. It had in the market leading up to the crisis. So again, you know, it varied from company to company, but there was a lot of behavioral change. There was a lot of straightening up and, and thinking harder about how they were serving the consumer and a lot more emphasis on listening to the voice of the consumer, which is something we stress all the time. Right, right, right. And if you go back and look at, um, I was reading some of the articles from your tenure there, and there was certainly some people who had tremendous dislike, it seemed, for you personally, but uh, and certainly for the Bureau, for the, for the whole, as you, as you mentioned, like for the whole setup of the Bureau. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I, I'm curious about, from your perspective, what was the most challenging part of, of being the director of the CFPB? Well, I certainly did have to face the fact early on that I wasn't going to be liked by everybody. <laughs> in particular, you know, some industry executives were very opposed to what we were doing. Uh, they felt threatened by that. Many of them got with the program and understood it and recognized that change had to be made and they had to be part of the change and learned to embrace it. But for example, when I would go to testify in front of Congress, which I was required to do in front of the House and the Senate about every six months, although it turned out to be more often than that because they took a great interest in what we were doing. It was, it, those were difficult sessions, and there were some real opponents of the Bureau, people who, were, who had been opposed to the Bureau, had voted against the creation of the Bureau, were doing their best to try to, as I say, uh, resist the work that we were doing. And sometimes that got very partisan. It got very nasty. And, you know, that was just something that I had to learn to deal with as best I could. I, I would try to diffuse it if I could. But the only way I knew for sure that I could have diffused it was by doing less at the Bureau. And I wasn't willing to do that. We, we felt strongly the sense of mission to improve the marketplace. And we knew we had limited time to do it. So we were pushing ahead uh, pretty right. aggressively. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so I want to talk something about something that's been in the news a bit uh, lately, and this was this is about payday lending or, or small dollar loans, and you know the the, the CFPB under you have proposed limits on payday lenders, and those those limits have now been rescinded. Maybe I'd love to get your perspective on why why it was why it was wrong to rescind those those rules, in your opinion. Sure. And, and again, this is against a background. Uh, payday lending was an industry that grew up uh, at the state level. 
for usury caps in place in actually in all 50 states, limiting the interest rate that can be charged on the lending of money. And there are a number of states that have made an exception to the interest rate cap to allow small dollar lending at much higher rates because it is a less lucrative business and it's, it's costly and, and so forth. But about a third of the states have not rescinded their interest rate cap. So in about a third of the states, there is no payday lending. It's an interesting reflection. In, when we tried to restrict payday lending, the industry said, no, you, you can't do that. People can't get by without access to this kind of credit. Well, about 100 million Americans in 17 states do get by without access to this kind of credit. So that's an interesting reflection. What we were doing was trying to put in place for the first time federal rules to reform the market. And the reform that we were looking at in particular was that small dollar lending has become lucrative for companies because they've targeted a particular kind of customer. It's a customer who needs a loan but will not be able to repay that loan in full at the end of the two weeks or the short period. And will have to roll it over again and again and pay fee after fee and end up in a long-term debt trap as opposed to a short-term situation uh, at very high rates of interest. We're talking 390% on average and sometimes exceeding 500% annual rates of interest, obviously ruinous to people's finances if they're stuck in these loans for a long time. So the reform that we put in place as the first rule governing the payday lending market was that if you were going to make a payday loan or vehicle title loan, you had to first make a reasonable assessment that the borrower would have the ability to repay that loan when it came due without having to immediately reborrow. And that's a principle, the ability to repay principle that has been put in place in the mortgage market and the credit card market works very well. It's typical of traditional lending. Typically, a lender will not lend to a borrower unless they know the borrower is likely to be able to repay or else they will lose their money. It's just that this particular industry is different. We analyzed millions of payday loans and found that they made most of their money off the trapped repeat customers who were paying fee after fee and ultimately might well default, but by then the payday lender had more than made their money back. So that was the gist of the reform rule. Now, it would have definitely affected the revenue and the, and the business models of payday lenders as they exist today, and they have been deeply resistant to that all along. And after I had left the Bureau during the last few months of my term, they did go back to the Bureau and have gotten the Bureau now to rescind that rule, although that's going to be challenged in court, and I think the ultimate outcome at the moment remains highly uncertain. But that was the, the reason why we uh, attacked this problem. It, that's the problem we were trying to take on, and that's the reform we were looking to put in place. Right, right. And, and you know, it makes, obviously, logical sense that if someone's taking out a loan, it would make logical sense that you should check to see whether they could afford it. But, but anyway, I also I want to talk about, I mean, there's, there's, there's payday lenders and then there's the installment lenders and this, that are often, you know, 10, 15%. But there's, there's, there's in between, and I'd love to get your perspective because you hear from the, you know, the advocacy groups saying that, you know, anything over 15% is, is unacceptable. It's too high. And there's obviously usury, usury caps in many states. But what about those companies that are 
lending money and like we talked you know, this US bank has a pretty significant lending program it's not payday same with key bank there are there are other smaller banks that have this and there's many many online lenders that have programs in in your assessment do you is the, is there a is there a line in the sand like is it 36% is it 15% or is there is there a line in the sand where you say that is that that is unacceptable and it, and it's really it's going to be harming the consumer or how do you know, like, for the, there, are, there are some lenders that I know that have, you know, fairly like rates in the, in the high double digits that go out of their way to try and make sure it's a positive outcome for the consumer. So where do you stand on that? Well, look, I think if you're talking about a rate that's in the high double digits, it's very difficult to make that a positive outcome for the consumer. I mean, it's possible in, in individual instances for some particular reason but in general, that's, that's not going to help people's finances. And the argument here over access to credit is, should there be access to credit of any kind whatsoever, no matter how harmful it may be, or should it be only access to beneficial credit? Now, the consumer groups typically draw the line in the sand at a 36% rate of interest. That's sort of the top end of, of any kind of credit card program. It's become a settled number around the country at the state level. I personally think that that's a reasonable level, although I think you could add certain fees. Again, short-term loans are more expensive to make, more cumbersome to make, and less lucrative. So I was, when I was the director, we encouraged U.S. Bank to pilot a program that turned out to be somewhat higher than 36%, but well under triple digits, or, or under triple digits, and uh, Fifth Third and eBank. And to see banks trying, some banks trying to offer a small dollar loan product, and many credit unions offer such a product, uh, I think is a good thing. It creates competition and shows that small dollar lending can be done at more affordable levels. You don't have to be at a 390% rate of interest to make money in this market. And so uh, I'd like to see more uh, banks try to offer a more beneficial product. But I don't want to go back to there were some banks, including Wells Fargo, who at one time were offering those high triple digit loans, interest rate loans, and they were really mimicking the payday lending industry and bringing that industry into the banking process rather than coming up with decent banking loan programs that of which, as you say, there are several and there could be more, I thought was the wrong approach. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I want to talk about overdrafts. And you mentioned you talk about this in your book, and it's one of my um, it's, it's 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 certainly a personal pet peeve of mine. So I want to give you a situation where someone overdraws their account uh, by ten dollars. They pay a thirty five dollar fee. If that person pays back that fee and the and the original amount in seven days, I, I did the math. It's an APR of eighteen thousand two hundred and fifty percent. Why do we have a product like that? And I know you, you, took, you took action, um, you took some actions to talk about in your book uh, against, uh, against some banks on this. But I, and the, the digital banks, many of the digital banks are really using this sort of no overdraft as, as a selling point. And I'd just love to get your perspective on, on how you feel about overdrafts in general. Yeah, I I think consumers have learned a lot about overdraft in the last decade. They know that it is a danger. They know that it can be very harmful. There's a lot of talk about the $35 cup of coffee, and people are trying to avoid that. As you say, there's some fintech providers that have developed good products, consumer-friendly products to help them avoid overdrafting. And by the way, the people who pay a lot of overdrafts are some of the people who subsidize free checking for other customers at the banks. 
The banks became uh, dependent upon this as a source of significant revenue when the banking regulators allowed them to move into overdraft in a very aggressive way, a very costly way for consumers. Uh, I think that uh, the efforts being made to use technology to root it out are very beneficial to consumers. Uh, we did not issue a rule on overdrafts while I was the director, in part because there had been new rules just issued by the Federal Reserve, and we needed to take some time to see how those played out. And our bandwidth was really absorbed by the mortgage rules, which were such a heavy burden for the Bureau early on. But I do think overdraft could could stand some some consideration in terms of whether there are regulatory reforms that would improve that market. At the same time, there's been efforts made to develop safer banking products within the system. The FDIC has had such an effort. We joined them on that. And as you say, there are fintechs that are providing services and and competitive programs that are much more user-friendly for consumers. So it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out, but it's still the case that overdraft is a significant source of revenue for the banks. It is not a very user-friendly product. It is very expensive. There are ways the banks could provide more notices and alerts to help people avoid overdrafting. They typically don't want to cannibalize their revenues to a significant degree. And so that's the standoff that we currently face. Right, right. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about fintech here. And uh, and you talk about this, you have a whole chapter in your book where you, you or there's fintech throughout your book, actually. But I mean, there's one, one chapter here where you talk about Project Catalyst, which was sort of the innovation project at CFPB. And, and we've had Dan Kwan on the show. Uh, Dan's been a longtime friend of, of Lendit and um, he's actually helped us set up this interview. But I'm curious about, you say there in, in this, you don't like the sandbox concept. And so I'm just curious for how, how should fintech companies work with regulators like the CFPB is, if there is this regulatory uncertainty where they're creating new products? Yeah, so sandbox has become kind of a slogan that's thrown around kind of loosely, not only in the United States, but around the world. And it can mean different things to different people. If it means a kind of regulation-free zone where anything goes and there's a lot of laxity, I don't think that's good for consumers. And I don't think it's good for the industry because it's not sustainable over the long run. Uh, if, if you think that that's useful for incentivizing fintechs to try new things, I, I give some credence to that. Uh, we tried to do uh, to do this kind of incentivizing through our office hours program, which as you mentioned, Dan Kwan headed it. He was tremendous at the Bureau, really spent a lot of time understanding the fintech industry and bringing their insights back to the Bureau, helping us understand where they were consumer friendly and where they were consumer risky. Uh, and we spent a lot of time and paid a lot of attention to some of the leading fintech companies to help guide them on their way and see if we could help clarify some regulatory obscurity that they run into. They inevitably run into it because if you're offering new products, novel products, then clearly it's not apparent how they fit into the existing regulatory scheme, which is drawn around existing or prior previous products. So there's going to be questions, there's going to be uncertainties, and we tried to leave the door open for people to get a better read on that, while at the same time encouraging people to innovate but to do it in a consumer-friendly way uh, and to recognize that we didn't have all the answers as to what that meant. They didn't have all the answers to what that meant and that we could learn from each other as we went along, which is what we tried to do. Uh, but I don't, I don't think there's yet a clearly defined program 
at any of the agencies in the United States or even around the world that is working effectively mm-hmm. to marry the very rigid world of financial regulation with the innovation needed with fintech companies to meet consumers' needs. Uh, and it's something we need to keep working at and keep trying to fit together. Uh, and there's a lot more work to come in that area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And I want to, I want to um, switch gears a little and talk about open banking because this is something that I'm also really interested in. And it, you know, it's been, it's, it's been mandated in the UK and it's been now, you know, I think it's two and a half years or thereabouts when they've had it. And it's, actually, there's been a lot of innovation around, you know, basically getting all this access the data that the banks can no longer silo their data and they have to provide API access. And there's, there's some really, really interesting products developing there. Here, we obviously, there's no, there's been no regulatory um, action on this. And I'd love to sort of get your take on whether we should go the route of the UK and, and force banks, or do you think the market should decide? That's a great question because it is, as you say, being done very differently around the world in Europe and the UK and, and frankly, uh, increasingly, uh, Canada and Australia, there are open mm-hmm. initiatives that are regulatory in nature. They're being driven by the regulators. It's interesting because there has to be a certain confidence by the regulators that they know the right direction to go. In the United States, it's been more market-driven and the regulators have been more hands-off. And that could work. Uh, it's possible. The difficulty in this area is that there's a real disconnect between individuals who want to control their own financial information and the biggest financial institutions, the banks, who have a lot of that information and have put time and effort into assembling it, analyzing it, organizing it, safeguarding it, and the like. I firmly believe, and we, we made this clear when I was the director of the Bureau, that that information needs ultimately to be controlled by the consumer, the mm-hmm. consumer permission it, the consumer should direct its use, The financial institutions have resisted that, and there's kind of a three-way battle going on. There may well be ways to establish standard-setting organizations. I've done some work with Finicity, and they're working on the FDX standard-setting organization that may make a difference in this industry. The FDIC actually just today put out a request for information to understand more how it could assist in standard-setting. Standards have to be set and they have to be enforced in some manner if it's going to work. And the natural way that happens in a lot of places is through a regulatory body. But we'll see how it develops here. It Mm -hmm. does seem to me that there is tremendous, tremendous value for the consumer in being able to permission and control their data, to have it go to third-party experts, as you say, that can help them understand better how to manage their finances, how to apply for loans, what, what they really qualify for in the credit space and getting the best deal for themselves. All of these things can flow from, from that. The other side of this is data has to also be kept secure and there has to be privacy safeguards so that the use of it is something that consumer controls and doesn't get away from them. And that's been a difficult issue for a lot of financial institutions. And again, it could be some standard setting body could help enormously on that. That's something some of us have been working on and, and are very encouraged at the prospect of doing it that way. But we will see, and it may be that the United States will have to transition to a regime more like the European regime, or the European and, and other regimes may learn from what we're doing in the United States and may find that uh, a lot of these things can be adapted 
to their to their mode. We we will see. It's, yeah, it's it'll be interesting. Early days in many respects for yeah. open banking, although the promise of it and the incentives to do it and the value for the consumer, I think, are now beyond dispute. Right. Right. Okay, so we need to talk about the Supreme Court decision that happened you know, earlier this month, I think it was, and and it was basically struck down the CFUB leadership structure as unconstitutional. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a really sad day for the CFPB. It's a sad day for consumers. And then I, I read your op-ed in the Washington Post where you said, actually, it's not really, that there is a silver lining here and more than a silver lining. You said it's actually a really a win for consumers. Explain why you know, why you say that. Yeah. And, and, you know, in some respects, I'm one of very few people who are in the best position to assess the and, and the benefits of that decision, having been the first director and led the Bureau for six years, uh, obviously the longest tenure in the, in the Bureau's history. I can tell you that I don't think that my work would have changed much at all if I had been removable at will by the president, as opposed to removable for cause. Uh, there's a kind of independence that comes with that. You're hedged in by a lot of different influences and, and uh, circumstances in any event. But at the same time, I, it wasn't going to change my approach to the mission of, of the agency. The other issue that was at stake in the case was whether if the leadership structure of the Bureau, the independent tenure of the director, was found unconstitutional, was that going to somehow upset the apple cart for everything the Bureau had done over the last 10 years, and was it going to perhaps even put the Bureau out of business for the future? And that There were parties in the case or briefs in the case filed that argued that point and argued for that broad, disruptive result. But in the end, the court did not go there. The court said, in fact, that aside from the leadership structure and the tenure provisions for the director, everything else about the agency was valid and was, would be upheld and certainly open the door for the agency to go back and ratify actions that have been previously taken, whether by me or by Director Mulva acting Director Mulvaney or Director Craninger, and they have ratified many, many of those actions taken, and they're ratifying more as, as we have each passing day, so as not to disrupt these markets and to recognize that the work that the Consumer Bureau has done, although it's been resisted in many ways, has in fact been constructive for a lot of these markets. It's improved the mortgage market, no question, improved the credit card market, and it is having its effect in other markets as well. Right, right. Okay. So we're almost out of time, but a couple more questions I, I really want to get to here. And obviously we, we're in a very unique time right now where there's, you know, there's tremendous uncertainty. There's a lot of financial hardship happening where people are unemployed. And I know there's, there's political wranglings happening right now. We're recording this in mid-July and the unemployment may end at the end of this month. And, you know, obviously the fraudsters are out in force. I mean, what, what do you think, you know, I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on, on how we can protect consumers in this time and what, what sort of a regulatory response should we have to, to enable that? Sure. And this has been a fascinating and very difficult situation that has just come up, you know, so swiftly in this country this year uh, and didn't really even happen until March of mm -hmm. this year. Up to that time, we were in a long, slow recovery from the last financial crisis. I have said again and again, and many others have said the worst financial crisis of our lifetime, the crisis of 2008. Well, lo and behold, suddenly we have a financial crisis to match it 
uh, and maybe exceed it here in 2020, particularly with the speed of the economic collapse, with the closing of the economy that followed upon the mishandling of the pandemic by this ad administration. And the interesting thing is the last financial crisis was caused by financial markets, by the mortgage market, uh, and the imbalances and the excesses and the irresponsible behavior there that flowed through to Wall Street and securitized investments and caused a lot of uh, damage to the financial system. This is not a financial crisis of that kind. This was caused by a pandemic. But whatever it is that upsets the engine of the economy, knocks it off of its smooth path, the results often end up being the same. There will be unemployment. There will be people who cannot pay their bills and cannot make payments and end up defaulting because they've lost income. There are very uncertain times for many families. In the United States, when you lose a job, you often also lose health care. And that can cause tremendous financial stress for families and uncertainty. The oddity of this recession, though, is that the interventions from Washington have been so dramatic, so vast, and so quick that, uh, in fact, we saw average household income, when you take both income and jobless benefits and put them together, rose in April and was still up, even though down slightly from April, still up in May. And as Jamie Dimon said recently, I agree with him, this is a very strange recession. Income has been up. House prices have been up. Uh, the kind of misery that we often feel as people are dislocated, businesses go out of business, and people are out of work, uh, has been deferred in this case. And it may be deferred further if we get another stimulus bill from the Congress in the next couple of weeks, which we may want. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, it will, it will hit, and we will have problems. We will have closures. We will have evictions. We will have people on long-term unemployment. It's already estimated by most responsible observers that unemployment will remain in the double digits through the end of this year and remain historically high through 2021. So we are in, in a, a collapse that is significant. It is being papered over by policies that have been very aggressive, not just by the Congress, but by the Fed. And how all that plays out is very, very difficult to say. You have this tremendous disconnect between the investment markets on the one hand and the actual economic numbers for the, for the GDP and the real economy, which are much worse, and who is right and who is wrong will take some time to play out, particularly the Fed artificially stimulating the economy as much as they have been, and with the country suddenly running what's going to be four, five, or six trillion dollar deficit starting this year, which is unprecedented. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So final question. We are, we're about three and a half months from election day. And you know, obviously, that's, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But if, if Joe Biden wins the presidency, and obviously, I, I would expect the, the CFPB may take a, a slightly different direction. What do you think the priorities of the CFPB should be in a Biden presidency? Well, I think the priority of the CFPB should be what I've always thought the priority of the CFPB should be, which is the C, which is consumers. And in the time where the pandemic and its effects are going to continue to mean a lot of hardship for a lot of Americans, and again, maybe it didn't happen in April for some of them, maybe it didn't happen in May, but it will happen for many of them eventually here, there's going to need to be a vigorous response from the CFPB. They're going to have to try to protect people in terms of their credit reports. They're going to have to protect people from 
abuse and harassment by debt collectors. They're going to have to think about how we uh, transition out of a period where people haven't been able to pay their mortgages, haven't been able to pay their rents, and what kind of public policy responses there need to be. Then we're also going to have to, once we've righted the ship and we've got the economy back on a course of recovery, and long-term recovery, not a up-and-down, herky-jerky recovery as we seem to be having right now, we need to think about whether there are any reforms that are needed to address the problems that have been laid bare by this current crisis. The last time the Dodd-Frank Act was a significant financial reform bill, I don't know that that's merited here because it wasn't a financial problem that caused the crisis to begin with. But there's some things around Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, there are some things around hedge funds and others that may call for, for congressional legislation. Uh, and again, we'll see what the political landscape is. As you say, we're three and a half months from an election. That's a lifetime in politics, as, as many people have seen. And, and it will be a very different course mapped out for this country, depending on who wins this presidential election. And the, and the course will, will again, uh, vary dramatically, uh, depending on how that transpires. Mm-hmm. Okay, Rich, we'll have to leave it there. I, I very much appreciate you coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks. Okay. See ya. You know, if every financial institution really had the best interests of consumers in mind with every single thing they did, then we wouldn't need a CFPB. But the reality is they don't. And even there, there are some that either by errors of omission or, or by hiding things in the fine print, you know, they, they try and get away with things that really is not in the best interests of the consumers. So, you know, there are those that have tried to, uh, you know, to really just dismiss the CFPB as, as, as something that's worthless. There are those that have, you know, that really have challenged it. Now the Supreme Court has ruled. And as Rich said, that's actually a, a really a net positive for consumers. And I think that we, you know, it is good that, as, as Rich said, it changes behavior knowing that there's a watchdog out there um, that financial institutions can't just have free reign. They've really got to have the best interests of their consumers at heart. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA. The world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking is going virtual. It's happening online September 29 through October 1st. This year, with everything that's been going on, there will be so much to talk about. It will likely be our most important show ever. So join the fintech community online this year, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Lend at Fintech, lending and banking connected. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA.